This is Our American Stories, and we love talking about work, entrepreneurship, and taking care of each other. And this next story combines all of those things in a very special coffee shop, Biddy and Bo's Coffee in Wilmington, North Carolina. And it's run by people with intellectual and developmental disabilities who might otherwise not have a choice to work. And today we have on the founder of Biddy and Bo's Coffee with us, Amy Wright. Amy, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for that nice introduction, Lee. I'm glad to be joining you today. Well, Amy, before we get into the business, the idea, this beautiful story, tell us a little bit about yourself and your family, where you grew up, and and how you got to this place where you were thinking about doing something like this. Sure. Well, I was born in New Jersey, uh, but I spent very little time there. My family quickly moved on to Erie, Pennsylvania, where I spent... Uh, through fifth grade, we lived there, and then uh, my family decided to move south, and um, we settled in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, where I spent the rest of my years uh, through high school, and uh, I'm the oldest of five children, so we had a really, you know, fun upbringing, um, very tight-knit family, and I just I loved my childhood, and even back then, uh, my parents say I had quite the entrepreneurial spirit because <laughs> it was not uncommon for me to host weekend talent shows where the whole neighborhood would get involved or, um, you know, do little uh, lemonade stands uh, every weekend. So I always loved small business and um, just trying to try new things and involve my siblings. So that was that was my upbringing. Uh, when I decided to go to college, I wanted to major in musical theater. I was very uh, into the arts and ended up going to the Cincinnati College Conservatory of Music, where I met Mr. Wright, I like to say, my husband, Ben Wright, and I met there during my senior year in college, and we just fell in love instantly. We were um, We met in September. We were engaged that New Year's Eve, and we married in May. And uh, after that, we moved directly to New York City because I wanted to pursue acting at that time. And and Ben had had a professional acting career prior to meeting me. And so um, moving back to New York City was a no-brainer for him as well. So we moved um, back to New York. Well, I moved for the first time. He moved back to New York. And um, we pursued acting careers and did that for a while and realized that we were spending more time apart than together because of different jobs that came up. And so uh, after about a year and a half of doing that, we decided we were going to settle down in the South, closer to my family, and um, have kind of a more typical life that way. And so we did that, and we hadn't been there but a few months when um, Ben's agent called from New York and said, do you want to... um, go on a national tour of a show called State Fair, which uh, he ended up playing the Pat Boone role in that. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, "He said, well, I'm interested, but I'm not leaving my wife again after having spent the first year and a half of our marriage apart from each other so much. So I ended up auditioning for the show, and we I got in the show, and we ended up traveling the country doing that. And the show actually ended up going to Broadway, and I had my little taste of Broadway, and... Um, 
kind of checked that box and said, okay, let's start a family. So <laughs> after that, we ended up back in North Carolina again and um, started raising a family. So, and when we ended up back in North Carolina at that point, we settled in Wilmington. So we've been here in Wilmington, North Carolina, just over 20 years and um, started our family here and, and um, have four beautiful children, um, two teenage daughters, one that's going off to college this fall. Uh, the second one is going to be a senior in high school. And and then uh, Bo was born, he'll be 13 in July, so um, he came along and, and then uh, five years later, his little sister, Jane, which we ended up calling Biddy because she's so itty-bitty. Um, so our kids range in age from 7 to 18, um, and I can, you know, share more about them, but I, I, feel, I don't want to ramble too much. Let me know. <laughs> feel no, free no, to tell, <laughs> tell, us, uh, you tell us a little bit about about the, the four of them, what they're interested yeah. in. Yeah, they're the joys yeah. of your life, and I think it's people who love yeah. life and love kids like you do that also love these special needs kids. So talk yeah. about those kids of yours. Yeah. So my kids are amazing. Um, b- before Bo was born, uh, Ben and I had had very little exposure to people with disabilities. You know, back when I was growing up, um, I, the kids who attended the public high school that I attended that had special needs were really um, kind of tucked away. And so you know, I look back on those years and I really feel like I missed out on forming some meaningful relationships with people who I would have been great friends with, but just had never been exposed to. And um, so when Bo came along and he was diagnosed with Down syndrome, Ben and I were paralyzed for a while because we hadn't really never known anybody with Down syndrome and were scared of what we didn't know. And spent, you know, a while educating ourselves about the diagnosis. And, you know, looking back on that, um, it was a very scary and um, (sighs) embarrassing time. You know, when I look back and I think about how we reacted at first because of what we didn't know. Mm -hmm. And um, the the interesting blessing um, that followed was that Biddy was born with Down syndrome too. And so um, by the time we had Biddy's diagnosis, you know, we were so excited because we knew what Down syndrome was and we knew what a blessing bow was in our lives. And we were ready and and just so excited that Biddy was joining our family too and that she also had Down syndrome. Well, when um, we come back, you hold that thought right there. When yeah. we come back, more with Amy Wright. And that's the founder of Biddy and Bo's Coffee in Wilmington, North Carolina. And already, folks, you're getting a a taste for the heart and the soul of this lady. And know that in this country, uh, the chances of a a young person uh, and a baby being diagnosed with Down syndrome and coming to live is very low. Uh, Upwards of 70% of kids are terminated before they're born. And we like to talk about that here on the show and educate people about the, the joys and beauty uh, that, that uh, kids who are born with disabilities uh, can bring to a family and to a community. This is Our American Stories. More with Amy Wright and her wonderful story after these messages.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we continue our conversation with Amy Wright. And we were talking with Amy about the birth of Bo and Biddy, both diagnosed with Down syndrome. She had two older children, Lily and Emma Grace. And so I think the first thing I wanted to talk about before we get to the coffee shop, Amy, is the in-between part. You, you find out these, the, these, these two children have Down syndrome. You learn from the first. The, the second's easier. How did your kids deal with this at first? And also your family and friends. Talk about the, the folks around your family and the reaction to these new children and the new challenges that they were bringing to the family and also the opportunities and blessings. Right. Well, interestingly, you know, Lily and Emma Grace were still quite young when Bo was born, and we made the decision that we weren't going to address the fact that Bo had Down syndrome with them out of the gate, because knowing that they didn't know anything about Down syndrome just as we didn't, we just wanted them to love him and and not be scared of what they didn't know. Mm -hmm. And so they spent the first, gosh, I mean, over a year we didn't talk about the fact that he had Down syndrome. Now, I will say, looking back on that, I kind of regret that because I think that it's really important to to talk about that and to, you know, to reframe how people feel about Down syndrome and other disabilities. But again, Ben and I were kind of still in that learning curve phase and weren't sure how our girls would deal with it. What we found was, you know, they loved Bo just, just because they, he was their brother, and it didn't it didn't matter, you know, when we did finally talk about the fact that he had Down syndrome, it didn't change anything. Maybe it even deepened their affection for him because they realized all that he had overcome um, because he was born with bilateral cataracts in both eyes and had gone through numerous eye surgeries as an infant. They were worried about things like that. They weren't worried about whether or not he had an extra copy of the 21st chromosome. Right. And then, you know, by the time we had the diagnosis with Biddy, they were, you know, overjoyed again, like Ben and I were, because we knew Down syndrome and we knew what we were getting into and we knew what a blessing this was going to be to have a second child with Down syndrome. You know, looking back, I think there were a lot of friends um, that kind of grieved as Bo was born and there was a lot of sadness and a lot of um condolences, which looking back again is kind of is ridiculous, but people around us didn't know Down syndrome either. And I think they were grieving the life that they thought we weren't going to have as we did for a little while. But just any time you spend time with Bo and Biddy, even as an infant, all of a sudden your perspective changes and you realize that it doesn't matter what the diagnosis is. You know, this, this child is just created perfectly and beautifully, and um, there's so much to celebrate. We have found that anybody who spends time with our family, their hearts are changed. And so, you know, and I guess kind of leading to why we opened Biddy and Bo's Coffee Shop, we wanted to multiply that feeling. We wanted other people to experience not only our kids, but everybody else that has an intellectual disability so that someday when that parent welcomes their baby into the world and the doctor comes in and says they have Down syndrome, that they don't have that reaction Ben and I had when we welcomed Bo because they know what Down syndrome is. They've been to Biddy and Bo's Coffee. They've met somebody there that works um, that has just opened their eyes to 
a whole new world. Um, and so that that's kind of our greatest motivator in, in creating this coffee shop is changing the way people feel about people with disabilities. It almost sounds like a ministry for you. You know, I, I, I meet yeah. people and I tell them all the time they're creating ministries. And it doesn't have to be a church and a steeple. It's just it has to do with love. It has to do with bringing people together and very, very often getting people to see something they might not have seen before through that power of love. And I just, I'm still, I mean, I'm, I'm practically in tears because it's, and not sad tears, just tears of, of joy that you yeah. get watching, watching just something beautiful happen. Talk about yeah. that day-to-day coffee shop experience. Talk about what you see each day. By the way, who makes the place run? I'm, I'm fascinated. Yeah. And who are the customers? Well, the place is completely run by people with intellectual disabilities. So we have employees that have autism, cerebral palsy, Down syndrome, uh, fetal alcohol syndrome. We have all, you know, all kinds of diagnoses. But they are so capable and they are hardworking and they have learned their jobs so thoroughly that they run this shop completely self-sufficiently. So someone will take somebody's order. Somebody else will make the beverages. Somebody else will um, call out the order when it's ready or deliver it to the table. Um, somebody might be greeting people at the door, but um, they are a well-oiled machine. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we have tons of regular customers that come in and have formed relationships with our team. Um, you know, lots of hugs and high fives all the time. But then we also have this interesting phenomenon of people that are traveling from all over the country some from outside our country, to come experience what's going on here because it's really special. That's always a thrill for our team, too, to see, you know, how people, you know, maybe for the first time in their lives, not only are they being treated with respect, but they're they're being treated like celebrities, you know, like they, <laughs> like heroes. And, yep. uh, you know, they, people recognize them. They come in with their cameras and they want to get pictures and autographs with our team. It is amazing how that changes the way somebody feels about themselves when they feel valued. You're no doubt about it. And what a better way to express that through this coffee shop. And you you don't have a a drive-through, and I found that fascinating. And what's the reason for no drive-through? Yeah, well, we just want the the whole motivation behind this is to bring people together and to have that experience of spending time with somebody that's different from you. And so you can't really achieve that as well in a drive through Sure, there's that quick moment, but this is a, the kind of place where you come in and you have a conversation and you see walls start to come down and you see relationships start to form. And so it's very intentional. We don't have a drive through um, Of course, that would boost our business if we did, but we we just do things differently here. And, um, you know, people will line up, people will line up out the door on the weekend just to come in here and experience this. That's a beautiful thing. Tell me, uh, if, you, if you can, a favorite story uh, that our audience would love to hear uh, from sure. that coffee shop. Well, I mean, one of my favorites is that there um, was a young couple that came in uh, months ago and were sitting at our counter and she was pregnant and um, one of our employees, Elizabeth, who has Down syndrome, was behind the bar, and she's just so loving. Anyway, she was hugging the mom and, you know, just being real sweet with them. And um, as the as the mom left, the pregnant young woman left, she said, um, 
you know, this baby we're expecting has Down syndrome too. And, uh, you know, it still gives me goosebumps to talk about because I think that's just such a wonderful experience for her to have had, to have spent that time with Elizabeth and have her fears maybe dissolved, you know, to see. I mean, I remember when Bo was born wondering, would Bo ever walk? Would he talk? You know, what would he achieve? Things that you you start worrying about as a parent. And for, for that young mother to sit there and see Elizabeth not only walking and talking, but holding a job and earning a paycheck and being trusted with responsibility, I mean, that had to have been life-changing for that mother. Yep, no doubt. And and with a minute or two left that we have, talk to anybody out there who is in that position right now. They're, they're pregnant. They've found out that their child's going to have a severe learning disability. Talk to that mom directly if you can. I just would say that, you know, we all have obstacles. We know as life goes on that things can happen to us and and change us, whether that is physically or emotionally or spiritually, and it, it will come when you least expect it. The thing about getting a diagnosis when your child is born is that you're kind of handed that playing card and, and you know what you're up against, but the reality is, you know, I have all kinds of obstacles I face with my teenage daughters that don't have intellectual disabilities, but there are challenges we face. Bo and Biddy, I kind of knew because with Down syndrome, I knew what some more specific challenges would be, but it, they're no different than any other child that, that you raise. You're going to face moments when things are tough. You're going to face all kinds of celebrations, but, you know, the fact that God created each of us perfectly and wonderfully, and there is, he doesn't make mistakes, and and the way that Bo and Biddy were created was quite intentional, and, um, you know, we just have to learn to embrace differences. I think as a nation, we need to do that more, you know, it's just, we, we need to recognize that each of us was created perfectly and beautifully in our own way and um, and just love one another. And I think that's the greatest lesson I've learned through raising Biddy and Bo. This is Our American Stories. And if you want to see and hear more of what we do, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And again, thank you, Amy Wright. And what a message of love. What a story. And it doesn't get better than that, folks. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and now it's time for our This Day in History segment, brought to us by Hillsdale College, the best college in America and the best place in America to learn about the Constitution, our nation's history, the arts, great literature, all the things that matter in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you through their hugely popular online courses at hillsdale.edu. And on This Day in History, a man who was born... Well, he was born on this day, and you know him, but then again, you don't. But you'd probably want to say thank you to him after this is all said and done. Chick-fil-A. I could eat there seven times a day. 
Where the people laugh and children play Oh, I'm in love with Chick-fil-A Suddenly I need waffle fries in front of me With some nuggets and a large sweet tea Oh, Chick-fil-A, you set me free Kids get in the van so we can go there today But their stores are closed, oh I know Cause it's Sunday Chick-fil-A The home of the chicken sandwich place where it's their pleasure, where it's their mission to serve us. It all started with a humble boy born on March 14, 1921, in Eatonton, Georgia. In a humble country town about 80 miles southeast of Atlanta, known interestingly enough for its cows, as the dairy capital of Georgia. We may never know whether his birth among the cows inspired his later advertising, but it sure is memorable. I have no explanation for what's going on right now, but uh, cows are parachuting onto the field. I'm not sure if this is some kind of a protest stunt or something. But the circumstances of his birth did inspire his story. His name, Samuel Truitt Cathy. Truett was born into deep poverty, made all the more acute by the Great Depression. When I was a kid, about the only thing I had to play with was a loose tooth. (laughs) And the loose tooth wasn't mine, it was my brother's. Though many lost all hope, others kept searching for opportunity, and the eight-year-old Truett was among them, dreaming up his very first business, selling Cokes in the family front yard. There was a neighbor right across the street. Traditionally, she would come out early morning with a Coke in her hand and sit in that rocking chair and rock for the morning. So she was my target market there to approach her by buying that Cokes from me. This wasn't just any Coke stand on any corner. The Cathy's had to make ends meet by running a boarding house, welcoming complete strangers into their home. And the front yard was prime real estate for thirsty boarders. My mom helped me build a little stand out there in the front yard. We was able to flag down the Coke truck and he'd give you signs from the Coke company to put around on you. A little homemade stand there. And we'd sell a whole case of Coca-Cola's, 24 Cokes. So when you sell 24 Cokes for five cents a piece and you paid 80 cents for them, you'd recognize a 40 cent profit. But the Cathy's entrepreneurial spirit wouldn't be enough. And in 1935, the family was forced to move to the nation's very first 
federally funded housing project, Atlanta's Techwood Homes. Truett, now 12 years old, and in new surroundings, again saw opportunity where others didn't. The high-density housing project needed news, and the Atlanta Journal needed to get to its customers. Truett thought he was just the man for the job, setting himself out to prove it to them, and he would, with the newspaper later awarding him for signing up so many first-time customers. But he says he got an even greater reward, daily satisfaction. I think the day of satisfaction is the day that I worked the hardest, the day I got most accomplished. And I think most people that way, when they do something less than what they're capable of doing, it's work. But when they do outstanding job and performance, it's rewarding to them. As Kathy's business grew, so did his needs for being able to reach his new customers. And Kathy attributes this moment in life to the creation of his people-first, service-oriented philosophy. In that seven years was far more valuable to me than a degree from Harvard. Because I learned the importance of taking care of that customer. I was very anxious to take care of that customer. If they wanted the paper put behind the screen door, keep the dog from tearing it up, I'd do that. I'd put it up on the, uh, in a rocking chair if the people were old and couldn't bend over. Part of it was that he needed to get the news hot off the press to the customer while it was still warm. A lesson Kathy would no doubt find useful later in his life. But for now, Kathy's paper route job needed his most prized possession. And I realized then if I ever had anything I had to work for it. So the uh, first thing of any consequence that I bought was a bicycle that I paid $4 for. It didn't have any fenders on it, but it had round wheels and a good frame, and that was good enough for me. And I never bought anything in my life that I appreciated more than that bicycle because I had to earn the money for it. In 1946, less than a decade later, Truett set out on his next entrepreneurial challenge, a restaurant. And not just any old restaurant. He later called it the Dwarf House, of all things, named for its limited size. When they did start to work on the place, while well, Ben and Truett got out there and they dug the ditches for the plumbers and, and they did everything they could do to help cut down on the expense. It could only hold 10 stools and four tables. I was afraid the man was going bankrupt because people would come in that he knew and said, well, you know, it's on the house. Uh, glad to see you. It's just... Uh, he considered a customer as a friend always. One dwarf house soon became three, until a raging fire brought him down to two. Once again, Truett saw opportunity in the midst of crisis. And when you have little kids and your wife praying for you about you really realize you don't have any problems you can't, don't have, that, that you can't handle. And that's part one of this two-part story on this day in history. Truett Cathy, the founder of Chick-fil-A, 
who to this day, though not with us, still teaches us about how to serve each other. Part two coming up after these messages. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We left off after part one of this remarkable story of Truett Cathy. He was born on this day in history, the founder of Chick-fil-A. And let's pick things up where we left off. As the smoke cleared, an idea in his head became clearer too. Go even wharfier. Open a fast food restaurant in its place. He was one of the first in town, but his customers and neighbors were pretty reluctant customers when he reopened in 1961. But then again, they hadn't yet tried the new addition to Truett's menu, what he called a Chick-fil-A. Mother always um, would salt and pepper the chicken and put it in the refrigerator overnight. She never disturbed the chicken then. And so that got him onto the marinating sea. And over the next four years, he would perfect the recipe using the skills he learned in his family's boarding house. People tell me, Trud, it's nothing so great about taking the bone off the chicken breast and putting it in between two pieces of bread and serving it. And I said, I realized that a simple idea, and that's the reason I was able to do this, because it was so simple. Now, Truett, if you talk with him, has this uh, homespun folksiness about him. That may be uh, the only thing about Truett that people might misjudge. He is very bright. As a matter of fact, I think he's a genius. In 1967, the Chick-fil-A sandwich was expanded into a full line of food and so would where you could find it, becoming the very first fast food restaurant in America to be in a mall. I had a gift shop in Greenbrier Mall, the first enclosed mall in Atlanta, and so Truett's little brain had been running double time, and he came out and said, Glass, what do you think about putting a Chick-fil-A place out here? 384 square feet there at Greenbrier Mall, Literally a hole in the wall. Place took off with a bang. And so he was the beginning of food in the malls. Quite a breakthrough, especially for us shoppers. But not all the mall owners were as thrilled. Truett had always closed his restaurants on the Lord's Day. Sundays, 
my decision to close on Sandy came the first week it was in business. I was thoroughly exhausted, and uh, I had to make a decision. I needed that day. Uh, I want to preserve that day. Sunday is for the Lord's Day. Leading mall owners to ask how they could limit their customers' options on one of their biggest days of the week. And how could they possibly do as well financially when other restaurants would have a whole day advantage? They asked Truett to change his policy, but he refused. They did come to the conclusion that if people left their mall to go and eat, they'd likely not come back. Nothing would change his mind. And for some mall owners, his answer wouldn't change their mind either. It's been a, a, probably the best business decision I've ever made uh, closing on Sunday. Didn't anticipate uh, it, it would be to my interest financially, but it has proven to my interest financially as well as convenience of permitting our people to have Sunday off where they can forget the business and other interests devoted to the family as well as to worship that they so choose. Truett didn't expect, but he came to realize that Chick-fil-A being closed on Sunday drove up anticipation for Monday. They would want it even more on Monday than they would have on Sunday. Six whole days at my favorite place. Yeah, I'm lovesick today. Three little syllables, Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A, feel so far away. Chick-fil-A, I'll see you on Monday. In 1986, after more than 20 years in operation, Chick-fil-A opened its first freestanding, full-service restaurant, what most fans find themselves flocking to today. And they now have more than 1,800 Chick-fil-A's across the country. When you walk into one of them, you know you'll always have a terrific chicken sandwich, and maybe even a delicious milkshake. But you know you're walking into something even more profound, a place of love. And so we put together a function here at the restaurant with all of his friends and decorated the restaurant just to welcome him home. When we pulled up, I saw the, the sign and it said, uh, I think it said, Welcome home, Bobby Dennis from Iraq. So I was kind of like, okay, that's cool. No matter who you are. I didn't have a ton of money, so I was using coupons. And I could tell by how many coupons that she had in her hand that there wasn't enough coupons for everyone in the family to be fed that day. And I decided that I was going to go over there and take all of her children, kids' meals. She treated us all to lunch. Truett once said, whether on the paper route or in my restaurants, I have found that the most effective way of promoting my business didn't cost me anything but a little kindness to my customers. I remember in the 70s, I asked him, I said, Truett, why do you keep doing this? You don't need the money. Why do you want to continue to grow? And he looked at me and smiled and said, the more I grow, the more people I get to meet and the more influence I can be. And that's when I realized the money's a byproduct of what he's doing with the company. Here's Deanne Turner, 
Chick-fil-A's Vice President of Corporate Talent and mentee of Truett Cathy, speaking with our own Lee Habib. He started out, he used to tell his franchisees there were three rules. Don't open on Sunday. Don't change the menu and put the money in the bank. <laughs> and uh, and he was and, and that's how the phrase "It's my pleasure" came about. It was one of Truett's few edicts, and uh, he actually made that an edict to the chain, asking um, our team members not only to to greet guests in that way when they said thank you to say it's my pleasure, but also to fulfill it. It's my pleasure kind of service. It all comes from Truett, but for Truett, it all comes from God and for God. Hoping, praying to goodness that I can have the same kind of influence on my children that dad and mother had on us. To carry on the message of uh, what a happy home is really all about and trying to recreate that of love and respect uh, for each other, for each member of the family. Uh, to carry on a message of, uh, of good business ethics and uh, how to operate a business on biblical principles how to use that business as a platform to touch the lives of other people, carrying a message of how to be a faithful steward of all that God's entrusted. Chick-fil-A's corporate purpose reads, to glorify God by being a faithful steward of all that is entrusted to us, to have a positive influence on all who come in contact with Chick-fil-A. We honor God in our successes, not in our failures. I think he designed all of us to be a winner because he gave us an insight to we all want to be somebody and achieve something noteworthy in our lifetime. So that's God's gift to us that he wants it and the only thing he requests to do is believe in Jesus Christ. True it can be. This day in history. If you lined up all the restaurants <laughs> Where I've eaten all my life Give me five bucks and some napkins A plastic fork, a plastic knife Then you gave me the choice To pick where I'd eat today That's a real easy decision One that's not too tough to make <laughs> I would proudly go for some waffle fries and Greg, great job on that. Just superb work. And the team here just always continues to surprise all of us. But in the end, we're doing what Truett asks all of us to do, and that's serve. And we here at Amer American Stories, well, we try and serve the stories and serve you with a little bit of dose of good news every day in a day filled with bad news and cynicism. You'll get none of that here. And by the way, this is all brought to you by our great sponsors at Hillsdale College, where, by the way, one of our guests here, John, had pointed out, we've got to make sure that people know that when you go to hillsdale.edu and you sign up for the courses there, they're free. And they're not just free. They are some of the best professors in the world. Each year, I go to Hillsdale personally. I, I went to a great law school, the University of Virginia. And every time I go to Hillsdale... I learned something from the undergraduates, not just from the great professors, but from the undergraduates themselves, their dedication, their work ethos, and their talent and intelligence, and the way that staff and faculty, they don't drive their kids, they inspire their kids. And that is something we need more of in this life, 
inspiration. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And you can catch all of this on OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Our American Stories. And now it's time for our This Day in History segment. As always, brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can come to you. Go to hillsdale.edu. They've got 17 terrific courses online for you and the family. And on this day in history, in 1879, Albert Einstein was born. This is a man whose name has become synonymous with the word genius. But who was he? How did his mind work? And perhaps most important, what can we all learn from him? Walter Isaacson was so intrigued by these questions that he spent over 700 pages trying to answer them in his definitive biography of Einstein. Prior to leading the Aspen Institute, Isaacson ran Time Magazine and CNN. Among his other books are biographies of Henry Kissinger, Benjamin Franklin, and Steve Jobs. As we've done with so many other great authors, Let's spend some time with Walter Isaacson on the life and the mind of Albert Einstein. So considering how we now use this word, Einstein, was the young Albert a brilliant and ideal student from day one? He was very slow in learning how to talk. So slow that uh, his parents consulted a doctor. And uh, the family maid, this is growing up in Germany, dubbed him Der Doperty, which means the dopey one. (laughs) He was also uh, somewhat of a rebel. Uh, One of his headmasters actually kicked him out of school. Another amuses history by saying, this Einstein, he'll never amount to much. I do think that all of those qualities made Einstein the uh, patron saint of distracted school kids everywhere. Uh, You see his posters, of course, among every school kid who thinks of himself as a rebel, Uh, or slow in learning how to talk. But I also think that these qualities are among the qualities that help make Albert Einstein a genius. First of all, his slow verbal ability. He was slow in learning how to talk, so he thought in pictures. He used to do what he called thought experiments. It's what you and I call daydreaming uh, when we're not Einstein, but for him, it was called a thought experiment. And it made him imagine things, like what would it be like to ride alongside a light beam or to be in an elevator accelerating in space where there was no gravity or being in a train with lightning striking on both ends. And that's what he excelled in, thought pictures, rather than complex mathematical formulas when he was a kid. Aside from being a bit of a rebellious student, young Einstein was also remarkable for how he marveled 
that what most everyone else took for granted. His father gave him a compass at age five when Einstein was sick in bed one day. And Einstein said his hands trembled as he just watched why the needle kept pointing north. There had to be some unseen thing in the universe making this happen. I mean, you and I probably remember getting a compass as a kid, but, you know, we didn't sit there and marvel at something that seemed relatively mundane. But he said he learned so slowly that even things like space and time and fields, electromagnetic fields, fascinated him. Perhaps it's this picture of young Einstein as a daydreamer, utterly enthralled by the universe around him, that led to the myth that he flunked math class. But did he? That would be great. It would be wonderful for the irony of history. But no, he was actually very good in math. Even as a kid, he was teaching himself algebra, coming up with his own Pythagorean proof of the Pythagorean theorem by picturing a triangle and picturing a larger triangle and realizing that Pythagoras had to be right. Every now and then, you know, my daughter Betsy, uh, she's, when she's 16, she was doing algebra. And she got one of the questions wrong on her homework and was trying to figure it out. And I said, well, just look at it. If the line is, you know, x plus 2y squared and you double it, it's got to slope upward. You don't have it right. It's got to slope upward. So what do you mean? I said, well, algebra, math is just sort of the brushstrokes that the good Lord uses to paint the wonders of the universe. It actually refers to things in reality. And she said, oh, they don't teach us that. They don't teach us that math actually refers to a reality. And, uh, yeah, that's what equations are. And so with Einstein, he was a little bit smarter at age 16 than my daughter, even though I love my daughter. Uh, So he was puzzling over Maxwell's equations and what they represented. Maxwell's equations were these new equations that had come along at the end of the 19th century, Robert Clark Maxwell, to describe light waves, electromagnetic waves. And as a 16-year-old, he did one of his thought experiments. He looked at Maxwell's equations and said, what would happen if you caught up with a light beam? Would you ever catch up with the waves? Just like if you were going real fast in the ocean, you'd catch up with the waves, they'd be stationary next to you. Could that happen to a light beam? Could you ever catch up with the waves of the light beam? And for reasons I promise you I won't go into, Maxwell's equations don't allow for that. It says the speed of light is constant. And so he said this worried him at age 16. He got all anxiety. His hands started to sweat. I was thinking of all the things that were causing my hands to get sweaty at age 16. It was not Maxwell's equations. As you can tell, Einstein was in his own world as a kid. And he did what so many other brilliant adventurers have done before and since. He runs away as a teenager, drops out of high school, runs away from Germany because he's, he's resistant of all the Prussian militarists there and stuff, runs away to Switzerland, Italy and then Switzerland, where he applies to the Zurich Polytechnic, the second best college in Zurich at the time, and he flunks the entrance examination. Not in math, I may say, or in physics, but he's not very good in languages. It takes him a year, and he finally gets into the Zurich Polytechnic. And there, being the rebel, being the nonconformist, being the one who defied authority, he's able to tick off all three of the major professors who teach him there. The great Heinrich Weber, the physics professor, doesn't teach Maxwell's equations, Einstein's quits going to his lectures, and then doesn't call him Herr Professor, calls him Herr Weber, which is uh, considered degrading. And so Weber uh, 
it feels very alienated from him. Pernay, the lab instructor, the physics laboratory instructor, Einstein was never a great experimentalist, that's why he was a theorist. But he goes into the lab courses of Pernay, tears up the instructions one day, says he can do it better, and blows something up, so he had to get stitches in his hand. Pernay put him on probation uh, from the lab thing. And then Minkowski, the great math professor, once again, we have a guy who gets to amuse history by saying and putting in writing that Albert Einstein is a lazy dog and uh, not a good mathematician. And when we come back, more with Walter Isaacson talking about Albert Einstein. Einstein born on this day in history in 1879. This is Our American Stories. our American stories celebrating the life of Albert Einstein born on this day in history in 1879 no better person to celebrate it with than Walter Isaacson who wrote the definitive biography of Albert Einstein Walter a terrific writer who also has written great biographies of Benjamin Franklin and Steve Jobs we were just hearing about Einstein's adventures and misadventures in college sure he managed to tick off all three major professors because he thought he knew better than them, but he did eventually get a degree. And so when he finally does graduate from the Zurich Polytech, he does all right, does pretty well in his grades, but he's the only graduate in his section of the Zurich Polytechnic who can't get a job, can't get an assistant professorship, can't get a fellowship, can't get a teaching assistantship, can't even get a job teaching high school, which he tries to get. In fact, he floods Europe. Oh, yeah, Germany, Switzerland, Italy, with letters, job applications, finally buy some postcards. And the postcards are the ones with the little detachable thing for the return postcard so that people could at least give them an answer. And most of them don't even bother to reply. In fact, in one of them in Ostend in Holland, it's now in the History of Science Museum, the postcard Einstein sent looking for a job. I think they'd be slightly embarrassed since they didn't even reply but he couldn't get a job. Finally, with the help of a friend, he gets a job as a third-class examiner in the patent office in Bern, Switzerland, working on a stool six days a week, examining patents. But lest we feel sorry for him, I actually think working in the patent office uh, was one of the reasons he was able to come up with some of his theories. Had he been an acolyte in the academy. Had he been a junior professor at a university, he would have to turn out safe papers and appeal to the professors there. Instead, he was looking at patent applications and once again, not daydreaming, thought experiments, he got to call them, doing thought experiments about what it was really like, some of these things that people were applying for patents for. How did they work? What was the physical reality underneath it? He was taught to be skeptical by his boss taught never to trust in any premise, always look at the underlying premises. And the types of devices he mainly looked at were devices that would synchronize clocks because Switzerland had gone into standard time zones. And the Swiss 
being Swiss, were very obsessive about all the clocks in Zurich and the ones in Bern have to, uh, you know, work together and be very good. So there he is trying to synchronize, uh, looking at these devices that synchronize clocks. And, of course, they do it through signals. You send a signal, a telegraph signal or a radio send signal or electrical signal. And these signals travel at the speed of light. So he's sort of trying to figure out how does that all work. And they are right outside of his patent office. He has a famous burn clock tower, 11th century clock tower, with the trains coming in and out of the station underneath the clock tower. And the trains in the station, the clocks are all synchronized with that big tower as the trains come in. And so he begins thinking about motion and time and the speed of light. And that experiment in his head he did as a 16-year-old about catching up with light beams. But now as an adult, Einstein wasn't merely performing thought experiments for his own entertainment. He was also writing papers and corresponding with other brilliant minds. He writes a letter to a friend. He has really close friends and stuff. And fortunately, one of them, Conrad Habicht, uh, is a very close friend of his, and they form the Olympia Academy, where they get uh, drunk or eat a lot together and talk philosophy. But Conrad moves away for a month, which is really good for the history of science, because Einstein gets to write him a letter. Typically of Einstein, it's an impertin impertinent letter. Calls him, you frozen whale, you smoked canned dried piece of soul. Why haven't you sent me your dissertation? He says, if you'll send me your dissertation, I promise you four papers in return. This is a guy six days a week working at the patent office on the stool, but when people aren't looking, on the side, in the evening, he's writing papers, papers about physics. And it's only later in the letter that you realize, because he calls it inconsequential babble, the letter. It says, I apologize for writing inconsequential babble. But then he tells about the papers. He says the first deals with radiation and is very revolutionary. And yes, that's the one that says light is not only a wave, it's a particle, the foundation of the quantum theory. The second talks about the true size of atoms. This was uh, before both scientists were fully convinced that atoms existed. But this is the paper he decides to use as his third try to get a doctoral dissertation accepted, because they keep rejecting his dissertations because it's the simplest and easiest to understand of his papers. So he submits it for the doctoral dissertation. Another one deals with Brownian motion, which is why particles in water seem to, or in liquid, sort of flicker around. And then he says the fourth is only a rough draft at this point, but it's an electrodynamics of moving bodies which modifies the theory of space and time. It's a lot more than inconsequential babble, that's for sure. What he did not tell his friend in the letter, because he hadn't yet thought of it, was right after he finishes that fourth paper, another thought occurs to him, right as he's uh, going on vacation. And that's, oh, if you modify space and time, then energy and mass are related. And he comes up with the equation, of course, the relation of energy and mass, E equals mc squared. And there it is, the most famous equation in all of physics. These articles are now known as the Annus Mirabilis papers from the Latin phrase, miraculous year. And it was miraculous indeed. These four papers, all published in 1905 when Einstein was a mere 26 years old, 
helped to establish modern physics by radically changing how we view space, time, mass, and energy. He throws away 300 years of conventional wisdom. Sir Isaac Newton saying that time is absolute and it tick-tocks along, it moves along irrespective of any observer. Einstein says, no, time is relative. The only thing constant is the speed of light. Now, in these wonderful 1905 papers, there was somebody helping him check the math. A very interesting woman named Maleva Maritz. She was the only woman student at the Zurich Polytech studying physics. A Serbian, a brooding Serbian. They fall madly in love. Einstein and Maleva marriage. Even though she's older, she has a limp, she's somewhat of a depressive, it's an immediate romance. They go off to Lake Como on a vacation right after they get to college and have an illegitimate daughter. Lost to history, put up for adoption probably in Serbia, probably died of scarlet fever. And then a few years later, finally, when he can get the job at the patent office, he's finally able to marry her. And uh, they have two children together. And she's putting up with him, putting up with uh, helping him check his math, helping with the papers. But eventually, they drift apart. It's a very human story of Einstein, very passionate man, not the cold and aloof professor you've been led to believe. So finally, he says to her, because he can't really afford a divorce, he says, one of these days, one of those papers will win the Nobel Prize. Now, nobody had hardly done much with the papers. It took, he couldn't even get an academic job even after he published the papers for a few years. But he says, one of these days it'll win the Nobel Prize. If you give me a divorce, you will get the money. Now, that's a lot of money, the Nobel Prize. Nowadays, it's a, more than a million dollars. She's smart. She takes a week. She calculates the odds. She consults with a physicist and a lawyer and a chemist. <laughs> and she takes the deal. Now, it's not until 1922 that they announce that he's won the Nobel Prize. But Maleva Maritz gets the money and buys three apartment buildings in Zurich. In the meantime, Einstein has fallen in love with his first cousin. This is a great soap opera, this tale. He and, uh, they have two, he and Maleva Maritz have two sons. The divorce is kind of messy because he hasn't won the Nobel Prize yet. Uh, he's alienated from his son's anguished letters that just have become released to his two sons, back and forth with his first wife, to his cousin, Elsa. All these letters about the anguish of the kids, eight years old, 11 years old, looking for their father. He's finally gotten a job in Berlin, but World War I has broken out. Maleva and the children have moved back to Switzerland. He can't cross the border that often. And even as he's having this anguished, personal time with his children, his first wife, uh, falling for his cousin, not quite married to her yet. He's trying to generalize his great theory of relativity. And never a dull moment with Einstein. More on his life with biographer Walter Isaacson when we come back. On this day in history, Albert Einstein was born in 1879. This is Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories, the life of Albert Einstein, born on this day in history in 1879. And we're listening to Walter Isaacson, who wrote the best biography on Einstein not too long ago. And what better thing to do than to bring it to life? We've been hearing about Einstein's four miraculous year papers published in 1905 that led to a complete reimagining of physics. But these were just theories. Einstein would have to wait until 1919 for experimental evidence that proved him right. Two years later, he was awarded a Nobel Prize and things were looking up for Einstein. But not all was well in Europe in the 1920s. As this anti-Semitism is arising, as I said, Einstein is not a conformist. Other people were trying to assimilate, trying to conform, that sort of thing. For Einstein, the rise of anti-Semitism made him identify more with his Jewish heritage. He hadn't been very, he believed in God, he believed in God's spirit in the universe, but he hadn't been very practicing in terms of his Judaism. But then in the 1920s, as anti-Semitism rises, he decides to align himself politically with the Zionist movement and Judaism simply because he doesn't like people being oppressed. He believes in free minds and free thoughts. In fact, he comes to... um, America, the first time, 1921, with Chaim Weitzman. They ask, uh, when they arrive, there's 10,000 people meeting him at the battery. And they ask Weitzman, you know, did he understand the theory of the relativity? And he says, on the way over, Professor Einstein explained to me many, many times, and by the time we got here, I was convinced he understood it. (laughs) Anyway, there are parades all over the place. This is a theoretical physicist, but they're parading him up from the battery. But he comes to Washington, and the Senate decides to debate whether or not relativity is right or not. (laughs) Boyce Penrose of Missouri comes out against it. They put the theory in the congressional record, and then they bring him to the White House to meet Harding. And they ask President Harding, do you understand the theory of relativity? And Harding, being one of the... um, last uh, honest politicians in this town says no. (laughs) At which point Einstein admits he doesn't understand the theory of normalcy, which was Harding's political platform. Now firmly established as an intellectual giant who helped launch a new era of physics, Einstein found himself playing a different role than the young rebel. By 1925 or so, he's been contributing to quantum theory, but he gets more and more uncomfortable with it. Suddenly, he's the defender of the old order. He's defending classical physics. He's the one who doesn't believe in quantum mechanics and Heisenberg's uncertainty principle and the notion of probabilities. He believes that there's certain laws and that God made certain laws that govern the universe and all this talk of probabilities and uncertainties makes him uncomfortable. Famously, over and over again, he says, I cannot believe that God would play dice with the universe. Finally, Niels Bohr says to him, Einstein, quit telling God what to do. (laughs) Now, speaking of which, people sometimes ask, well, was God just a figure of speech for Einstein? And people assume, because he was a great scientist, perhaps, that maybe he didn't really believe in God. And he kept objecting. He kept saying, no. I believe that there's a spirit manifest in the laws of the universe in the face of which we have to be humbled. And that, to me, is my sense of the Creator and what we're trying to discover. And then he said, 
We're in the position of a little child entering a huge library. The child knows somebody must have written the books, doesn't know how, doesn't understand. The child dimly suspects a mysterious order in the arrangement of the books. That, it seems to me, is the attitude of even the most intelligent human being towards God. So always he was a searcher for that spirit manifest in the laws of the universe. For somebody with such a big ego and such a big head, he could also have a real humility that came from that awe at looking at the universe. And what a visual of that library and that young boy looking at all the books and the order and nature of things. And so the next time you hear people say Einstein didn't believe in God or you can't believe in God and be a man of science, just quote Einstein and tell that person to shut up because it's just silly. It's silly. It's a fake war, actually. There's never been a war on science and religion. The two have cohabitated together beautifully for centuries. Up to this point in history, Einstein considered himself to be a pacifist. His humility humility allowed him to reevaluate that position. As a scientist, when new facts came along, he revised his theories. And so, when Hitler comes to power, he happens to be, Einstein is visiting America. Einstein, of course, never goes back to Germany, finally settles in Princeton, and abandons his pacifism to join the fight against Hitler. And he gets visited by scientific friends, 1939, And they go over the possibility of a chain reaction. In other words, putting into effect E equals mc squared, turning a little bit of mass into a huge amount of energy. And so he writes a letter to Franklin Roosevelt warning that a bomb could be built. And he says, the Germans may be doing this, and you ought to start a project to have a crash course to do the bomb. Somewhat oddly because he had been a pacifist and involved with a lot of world federalist-type causes. J. Edgar Hoover, who even back then was the head of the FBI, has been compiling a dossier on Einstein as being disloyal. Thousands of pages now available from the Freedom of Information Act, and they decide that he's too much of a security risk to let him know about the atom bomb project, even though he wrote this letter telling Franklin Roosevelt to do it. Uh, So he doesn't work on the atom bomb project, but he does help support the war effort. When the bomb is built, he's pretty much associated in the public mind with it. When you see that mushroom cloud, we imagine the E equals MC squared next to it. Einstein stayed in the United States and spent the rest of his life engaged in everything from scholarship to civil rights advocacy to the appreciation of music. And he was even offered the mostly ceremonial presidency of Israel, but he wisely turned it down as he didn't exactly have the skill set to be a head of state. But he does, on his deathbed, uh, agree to give a speech for Israeli Independence Day. He's told a billion people will listen. He tells Ben-Gurion, great, you'll finally make me famous. (laughs) And so he writes that speech, and on his deathbed he's working on it, and he decides to make it a speech on behalf of world peace. He never gave the speech. His papers are there as he's sitting there in the Princeton Hospital. An aneurysm has burst. And he starts with the very first sentence. I speak to you today, not as an American citizen and not as a Jew, but as a human being. And he has an outline for a speech calling for world peace. But then he puts it aside. And he pulls out his calculations again on the very last night. And 
On that day, he'd just keep scribbling into the evening one last line of equations to try to get himself just a little step closer to the spirit manifest in the laws of the universe with the little cross-outs and the mathematical mistakes and finally trailing off in the end. Thus it was that a very impertinent, rebellious, but incredibly imaginative third-class patent clerk became the mind reader of the creator of the cosmos and the locksmith of the mysteries of the atom and the universe. Spectacular writing by Walter Isaacson, a remarkable life, Albert Einstein's, seeking refuge in the end in the United States, as so many Jews did. We, of course, covered Billy Wilder and his refuge that he sought here in this great country. This is Our American Stories. Born on this day in history in 1879, Albert Einstein, as always, are this days in history, brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, the finest place in America to study all of the good and decent things in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you. Go to hillsdale.edu and sign up for any of their great courses, all 17 of them. in the window <laughs> the one with the waggly tail how much this is Lee Habib and this is our American stories and we cover every topic you can imagine love death sports art I just listened to the Andy Grove piece we'd done what a life this man led leading Intel leading the microprocessor and microchip revolution and Lowering the cost of everything and making it faster and better and ushering in, well, everything we use practically that we love in terms of technology Andy Grove used. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. Read that. Watch it. Listen to it. It's terrific. And we're playing this music because it's time for our The Burning Question segment, which we do each week with the Wall Street Journal's Heidi Mitchell. And The Burning Question at the Journal with those great journalists and those deep thinkers and those incredible writers and these well-trained, seasoned veteran journalists, is can kissing your dog make you sick? And i got to tell you, I can't wait to hear the answer to this one, Heidi. Thanks for joining us. Important journalism being done on it, kissing your dog. Let me tell you why it's important, important Heidi. Stuff. I'll tell you a story. I'm away at my family farm. We, go, we do this every few weeks, and we get together with cousins and relatives, and we just do nothing. There's not even cell coverage at this farm in the middle of Mississippi. And I'm watching my little pug go out into, where the, into the stable where the horses are, and he sleeps with us every night, and he started to eat the horse poop. You smell what I'm cooking, Heidi? So let, let's talk about this, because this is an important question. <laughs> How did you get to this, so, by the way? How did you get to this question this week? Why this question? Well, this was one of those questions that someone in the office asked, because she loves her dog, and she lets her dog kiss her all over the place. But, you know, we live in the city, most of us, and so there's a lot of icky stuff that the, the dogs are picking up. Um, but... 
I have to say, it's only like 6% of dogs eat bears or other animal species. So it's not so rare what your dog's doing oh, in the barn there. That's good to know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't feel so yeah. alone. Uh, so tell me, what, what's going on inside that dog's mouth? I mean, I've always heard the dog's mouth is the cleanest place in the world. They have special bacteria, and no matter what they eat, all's just dandy. Talk about that. Well, the thing is, is that their mouths are special. You know, they've evolved with all this yucky stuff in there, and it doesn't make them sick for the most part, right? I mean, most dogs are pretty healthy, happy, yep. loving animals and part of the family. And what they carry in their saliva is a lot of bugs. They carry a lot of stuff in there. Um, there's some stuff that that isn't going to be harmful to humans. There's some stuff that isn't going to be harmful to them. And then there's the stuff that ain't so great. And those are the things that doctors worry about. Yeah, I can imagine. So you, you talk to someone named Dr. Sykes, the interim director mm-hmm. of the Veterinary Medical Teaching Hospital at UC Davis. And this is where the journalism comes in, because you've got this burning question that may seem silly, but it leads you down some pretty interesting paths. So what do you learn about... Oh, it's amazing, because there's experts in everything, That's right. right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> they devote their whole lives to studying these things. Well, it's good to know that this doesn't make our dogs sick, but the question becomes, does it make us sick? So what does he have to tell us, Dr. Sykes, about your burning question? So it's a she, but she has lots to say about it. So the most crucial things you need to think about are Campylobacter, which is a food poisoning agent, um, Giardia, which can cause diarrhea, you probably heard of Giardia, mm-hmm. and Salmonella, which is, you know, an yep. organism that affects the gut and makes you have to take a couple of days off work or at least not be in public for very long. Um, and all those are just stomach ailments. They're really not, probably not going to kill you. They might cause dehydration and lots of diarrhea and, and pain in the gut. But if your dog is licking you all over your face and getting that saliva in your mouth, you know, you can catch that stuff. But it can get worse than that, which is, uh, I can't even pronounce these words, but capnocytophagia canimorsis and pastorella multisoda. And those are, um, they can get into your bloodstream, and they can even cause occasionally meningitis, ah, which can kill you. Yeah, that's not good. And so basically he's right. saying if you're going to kiss the dog or let the dog kiss you, not on the mouth, and leave open wounds alone and don't let the hound hound your wound, basically. So this is something totally disgusting to me because she spent a lot of time speaking to me about not letting your dog lick your open wounds. And... I was shocked that people would even do that. I mean, I guess if it's a little scratch, maybe you're like, oh, that kind of feels good. But an open gaping wound just sounds totally disgusting. And <laughs> if you look on the comments on the, on the page that we posted it on the journal, a lot of people talk about their dogs licking their open wounds that, you know, it'll cure it and help it heal faster. I mean, it's not going to help. It's still, it's an open wound. And then you're filling it with all these bacteria that you're already trying to fight an infection. And then there's all the stuff that's coming in, bacteria and little organisms. Not such a smart idea to have your dog no. lick your open no, wound. No, no. That's super yuck. Let me ask you about this because there are other ways for the saliva to get to us. And I did not think about this. But it's not just kissing okay, the so wound or kissing the mouth. It's, exactly. It's that catch ball so that we really play where with. It gets worse, right? Because 
what do most people do? They play catch with their dogs. So they pick up that juicy tennis ball covered in slobber, oh. and they throw it. The dog catches it, picks it up with its slobbery mouth, brings it back, fetch again. And then, you know, your hands are covered in slobber, and then, you know, you wipe your, people wipe their face something like 60 times an hour, you know, so you're getting it in your eyes and your nose and your ears and your mouth. It's all that slobber is going somewhere into your body oh. so you know you should maybe carry some purell or wash your hands after or just try to be cautious of wiping your face when you're playing with your dog yep yep and, and you know one, one thing i wanted to ask you is you write in your piece uh, about well getting infected by your canine i mean ultimately this can happen as you were just describing um in, in the piece what do you do if if you are infected by your canine so it's funny because most people would think, um, well, you call your vet because your dog got you sick, so your dog must be sick, but your vet really can't treat a human. Right. And she said that there's a lot of, con- it's like 50-50 people think I call the- my doctor, I call my dog's doctor, but you really need to call your doctor. So your doctor's the only one that can prescribe antibiotics or whatever needs to be done to get rid of these bugs in your body that you got from your dog. <laughs> you know, you have a couple of, uh, there some comments, obviously, and the joys of modern journalism or doing anything in public is that you're going to hear from folks. And one, one person, George Ann Mark Miller, wrote, canine blaming is bigotry. The authors are people privileged. Don't need no vet-splaining. <laughs> Ouch. So, so for the people who think you're hating on the pups... What do you got to say for yourself? Um, you got some explaining to well, do. Well, first of all, <clears throat> you got to never read those comments if you write these columns because they're all filled with, I don't know, these people a lot of time on their hands. I know. Um, and they always say mean things. But there are people who are, I'm sure, loving up their dogs and sleeping with their dogs. And, you know, they are part of their family. And I get that. I'm not a dog owner myself, but I get they love their dogs and nobody likes to hear that your dog's carrying germs. But look, my kids are carrying germs too. So I got to wash my hands when they come home too. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. It's everywhere, right? Yeah. It's what is really strange though, Heidi, is, you know, my wife watched the dog eat the poop and has watched this before and allows this dog to sleep with us and kiss him. If I went out and ate poop, my wife would not let me kiss her. Why Why the discrimination against the human? This human hating. That's what I want to know, Heidi. Not you know, there is, a, there is the flip side of the coin. Some people do believe, it's called the hygiene hypothesis, that the more exposure you have to yucky, dirty germs, the more your immune, immune system is going to build up. That's and right. then not react when it comes in contact with other foreign objects. So, you know, there's, there's research being done on that right now, but it's not conclusive yet. <clears throat> but she, have, she might have something there. She might have if something there. otherwise healthy. I mean, pretty much th- what Dr. Sykes worries about is children under five and people over 65. Right. And also people who are already immunocompromised, like a pregnant woman or, um, you know, a drug user or someone who cancer. So if you're healthy, you know, you're occasionally getting licked by your dog, even your dog that's eating the poop in the barn. That's, Maybe you're going to be okay. That's right. Hey, let me read you another Maybe don't one. don't kiss your wife. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> let me read one from Ian Andrews for you. Five dogs occupy my bed. Five dogs kiss me throughout every day, every week of the year. So far, so good. Also, this is my fourth generation of pups. I treat them all the same. They get to kiss me and sleep next to me in bed. They're better than girlfriends or wives as they don't complain about us and any BS. <laughs> So there you go. You really tapped a nerve with this one, didn't you, Heidi? Oh, 
They hate me. They all hate me. <laughs> they hate you. Hey, Heidi, when you guys are sitting around, do you, it, it, how does this happen? Do you have a consensus? Do you have a group meeting and, and say that's the one? How does, how does the, how does the uh, subject get picked each week? Sometimes it's just like we're sitting around. Sometimes my husband will email me something from work and be like, oh, I need to know is a stand-up desk better? Right, or, right. Um, you know, or I'm driving in the car for six hours and I'm like, my back really hurts. Is there a better way to stretch my back? And they're like, that's a great burning question. Right. Sometimes they're like, you know, it's getting hot. It's getting cold. Should I worry about my wet hair? You know, so it varies. Sometimes we get emails. Anybody can email in burning at WSJ.com. They can well, mail in their questions and we can have that random question you never thought to ask answered by an expert. Well, Heidi, I appreciate what you're doing. It's just fun to do with this. And I think next week we were, we were discussing this. So we're building a pool at our house. And if you remember, there was always that wives tale. You eat a tuna fish sandwich. You got to wait a half hour. You eat a roast beef sandwich. You got to wait 45 minutes before you can swim. And there was always this one person at the pool who knew exactly how long you had to wait before you could actually go in the pool. I think that may be one of our burning questions. Um, not that I want to impose on you, but you know, every once in a while we think the, we think these thoughts too. Now you got us thinking about these things. When it gets a little bit warmer, we'll, we will circle back on that one. Awesome. Well, Heidi, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it. And uh, come back more. Thanks. Come back each week, please. Thanks, Lee. Take care. You bet. Enjoy. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. The burning question, can kissing your dog make you sick? And uh, I just keep thinking about my dog in that barn, and that makes me sick just thinking about it. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. More after this.